Good morning, church. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. We just got back from Boston uh, yesterday afternoon, and then we had our other team that had been in Kenya uh, for the last week and a half. They got back last night about 1230 and uh, just checked. Every one of them's in church this morning, so that's good. I'm proud of them. Um, hey, I'm glad that you're here today, too. A few weeks ago, we started a summer series called Under the Sun. If you haven't been here in a week or two, and I know people come and go during vacation time and all of that. But throughout the summer, we're working our way through the book, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, would you open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3? We've made it this time to all the way up to chapter 3. And while you're turning to that, I want to give you the context. Again, I recognize some of you have not been here, so I need to give you a little bit of a summary or a context of chapter 1 and chapter 2 so that you can have a better picture of, of chapter 3. In chapter 1, the teacher, who is Solomon, introduces his main thesis of the book. And this is how he says it in chapter 1, verse 2. He said, meaningless... Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. How many times do you see that word in that one verse? This is not a trick question. Four. Now come on, if we're going to get through this thing, you're going to have to help me, all right? You see it listed four different times. He, he hits that nail again and again and again and again. Everything is meaningless. And I told you in, in one of the first messages that the Hebrew word there is hevel, or some of the, your Bible studies or uh, Bible study Bibles or commentaries would use the word hebel with a B instead of a V. Same word. And it literally means a breath or a wisp of smoke. The idea behind hevel, the, the Hebrew word that we translate meaningless, the idea is that it is empty, it is meaningless, there's no substance to it. And, and Solomon, the wisest man in the world, the richest man in the world in his day, would say, as I looked at life, everything in life is hevel. Everything in life is, has no substance. It's empty. Solomon, the king of Israel, the wisest, wealthiest man in the world, could not find what he was looking for in life. He said, it's all hevel. I showed this to you the first day, I think it was, but watch closely to what happens when I extinguish the match. That's Hevel. Hevel is, is like that smoke. You can see it, you can smell it, you know that it's real, but when you try to grab it, it's gone. Solomon said that's the way life is. The meaning and purpose of life is elusive. You try as best you can to grab for something that has meaning. You try as best you can to, to grab hold of something that will give joy in your life, that will bring happiness to your life. And Solomon, the richest, wisest man in the world, who had everything at his fingertips, said, I kept trying to grab for it, but it was all hevel. It was all empty. It was all meaningless. And then in chapter 1, verse 3, and I'm just trying to give you the context. He talks about life under the sun. That is a key phrase that I want to make sure you have marked in your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? If you're going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to understand that phrase, under the sun. It's used 29 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And to see something under the sun is basically to live life without God. Under the sun refers to living life with, with a merely human perspective, living life 
without God in the picture under the sun, living life, trying to find out all that the world has to offer. That's what it means to live under the sun. Now remember, Solomon had many foreign wives, the Bible says, and late in life, the foreign wives turned his heart on God. He literally walked away from God. He turned his back on God. And he tried to find meaning and happiness and satisfaction with everything under the sun. That is, he tried to find satisfaction and happiness in life without God in his life. He turned his back on God. We believe late, late in life, he turned back to God as an elderly man and wrote this book to describe his experience. So that's chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, Solomon lets us read his journal. He tells the story of pursuing everything that the world has to offer. And in that journey of pursuing everything that the world has to offer, he became an experimental hedonist. That is, he chose to make his own personal happiness his main purpose in life. So we read in chapter 2, verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Solomon experimented with the pleasures of this world. And he said, and when I looked at everything that I thought would make me happy, none of it did. And then, after he experimented with the pleasures of this world, he tried great projects and trying to make a name for himself and leave his mark. And look what it says in chapter 2, verse 10. He said, I denied myself Uh, Nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my work. And this was the reward of all of my labor. And yet, watch what he says in verse 11. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, hevel, empty. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He said, it's just like chasing the wind. You can't grab it. You can run after it, but you'll never grab it. That brings us to chapter 3, our text for today. In chapter 3, we're introduced to a a poem, if you will. The teacher strikes a familiar chord as he talks about the times and the seasons of our lives. This is probably the most famous, well-known passage in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. If you didn't know anything else about the book of Ecclesiastes, you probably will recognize this poem that we're about to read. In fact, this poem is so popular that in 1965, there was a band called The Birds who put this text to song. They literally lifted the scriptures, the words from from Ecclesiastes, and they put those words to song. Do Do you know the name of that song? Anybody remember The Birds and what they sang? It was a very popular song. Yes. First service, only one person who knew it. You guys are more in tune with with good music, aren't you? (laughs) Peter Seeger wrote that song. And in the 60s and 70s, it was a very, very popular song. And if you go back and YouTube it and listen to it, it literally, he's singing the words of this text. It was even a soundtrack for the movie Forrest Gump. It really was, which is very interesting to me that the secular world sees the value of this poem. That the secular world looks at that poem and and they sing about it and they put it in their movies saying, you know, there's something here, there's something that kind of describes what we're going through. And so let's look at this poem that has become so popular. It really, I'm sure, has a familiar 
ring to it. Here's what he says, just in verse 1, this probably sounds very familiar to you. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. If you hadn't heard the birds sing the song, you probably have heard that text at a funeral. It's a very familiar text, or you've seen it on a poster, or you've seen it posted online. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. Now, if you've been following chapters 1 and 2, and you, you, you recognize that in chapters 1 and 2, Solomon is pretty negative, and Solomon is pretty pessimistic about life and everything else. When we get to chapter 3, you'd expect him to say something discouraging about time as well. You might expect that he would say, time is short, or you might expect him to say, where did the time go? Or you might expect him to say, you're running out of time. Or you might expect him to say, uh, once time is gone, it can never be recovered. We might expect him to take that discouraging route, but he actually takes a more positive tone. In the first, in these eight, eight verses of this Hebrew poem, he speaks in a more positive tone about times and the seasons of our lives. Verse 1 kind of sets the stage. Verse 1 kind of explains everything that he's going to say, and then the next seven verses describes what he means in verse 1. So let's look at the text, follow as I read. This will sound very familiar, and then we'll go verse by verse through it. There's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Did you notice as we begin in verse 1 that Solomon, first of all, obviously uses this word time a lot. In fact, if you take the time to count it, and I actually printed the text out and circled it, there were 29 circles on my page where Solomon uses this word again and again and again, this word time or times. But, but also, he, if you'll notice in this text, he locates all the times of our lives not under the sun, he uses a different phrase. He locates all these times of our lives, he says, under heaven. Look at verse 1. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. That's different from under the sun. Under heaven seems to be a more positive phrase. It's probably indicating that everything in this time-bound universe is under the authority of God who is in heaven. That the sovereign God rules over time and rules over what happens in time. You see, not only are there times and seasons in our world, there's also times and seasons in your life. And that's the point that Solomon's going to make. I mean, you don't have to be a believer to understand that there are times and seasons in the world, right? I mean, can you believe summer's almost over? Pretty soon it's going to be fall. And you know what that means. Football! Nobody in the other service, even that service, nobody said, the fall leaves. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, they said football. Yeah. We understand. You don't even have to believe, be a believer to understand that there's times and there's seasons. Life moves on. Solomon's making the point, not only are there times and seasons in the world, there are times and seasons in your life. And the sovereign God of the universe, not only is he ruling over the times and the seasons of the world, he's also ruling over the times and the seasons of your life. Now, this poem describes the activities of our lives with 14 different statements. And, and there, there are 14 statements that, that really are, are kind of opposites. It's interesting how he does this. And he begins his observations with a very sobering statement. He says, verse 2, There's a time to be born and a time to die. He begins with this observation as he talks about the times and the seasons of our lives. He begins by describing both your birth and your death and helping us understand that both of those have an appointed time. You are not an accident. Your parents may have told you that you were an accident. You're not an accident. Your birth was an appointed time. And your death will be at an appointed time. David said it best in Psalm 139, when David said in verse 16, All your days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before I took my first breath, David said, you had determined the day I would be born and the day that I would die. Solomon starts out with this sobering statement. There are times and seasons in this world, and there are times and seasons in your life, and the biggest time that's appointed for you is the time of your birth and the time of your death. And God rules over all those moments. His sovereignty, as somebody said, His sovereignty has a chronology. I like that statement. His sovereignty has a chronology. There's, there's a pattern behind what God is doing. There's a season for everything. In fact, look at the next statement. He said there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. Solomon wants you to understand there, there are seasons in life when certain things are more appropriate than at other times. Again, you don't have to be a believer to understand this, that you can plant tomato plants in the winter if you want to. Probably not going to do very good. When do you plant tomato plants? Springtime. I don't know. I've never planted tomato. Well, I'll take that back. Maybe once, but they didn't live. I think it's in the spring, right? Am I right? You plant tomatoes in the spring. Why do you do that? Is it because you want to? No, you do that because you recognize there are seasons ordained by God. And, and the garden is going to work better if you cooperate with the seasons that God has ordained. Now you can resist that and say, no, I'm going to plant them in winter. Go right ahead. You have that freedom. But it's not going to work very well for you. And in the same way, there are seasons ordained by God in our lives. And life goes better when you understand the season that you're in and cooperate with the way God has ordained it. Now you can, if you want to, resist that. But your life's not going to go well. Your life only begins to make sense and have meaning when you begin to cooperate with the season God has placed you in. That's really the whole picture of what Solomon is saying here. 
Life works better when we understand and cooperate with what God is doing. Then he says in verse 3, and we're just working our way through this poem. He said, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Basically, I think what he's saying there when he says there's a time to kill, there's a time for just war. Uh, There's a time for self-defense. I don't know if this makes you feel uncomfortable, but I keep a a handgun beside my bed because I believe it's my responsibility to guard my family. And I believe there's justified times to, to take self-defense. Now, but with me saying that, I also recognize that people hear all kinds of things that preachers don't say. Are you with me? Pre- people hear all kinds of things that preachers don't say. So I want to be very clear. Ecclesiastes is not giving you to kill anytime you want to. This is not a prescription, this is a description. Our nation witnessed an awful slaughter yesterday in Dayton, Ohio, and in El Paso, Texas. And I don't want anybody to look at the Word of God and say, there's justification, there's a time to kill. No, that's evil. That's not what this text is talking about. It says there's a time to kill. There's a time when when that is justified. Then he says there's also a time to heal. There's a time to help those who are hurting. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, he said there's a time to tear down and a time to build. And we've seen that even in the life of our church. There used to be some buildings to my left, three buildings that stood there when I first came. And eventually, by God's grace, we were able to, as a church, say, you know what, that season has ended, and we tore down so that we could build the buildings that we now have. There's a time for that. There's a season for that. And that's what Solomon is telling us there. And then he says in verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We live in a world that's full of marriages and funerals. We live in a world where there are moments of joy and laughter, and there are moments of deep pain. Then he says in verse 5, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. If you ever go to Israel with me, one of the things that will astound you is the number of rocks that you see in Israel. For those who have been to Israel, am am I telling the truth? I mean, there, there are rocks everywhere, stones everywhere. And, and if you ask the tour guide, why are there so many rocks? I've never seen this, this many rocks. Why are there so many rocks in Israel? The tour guide will tell you this story more than likely. He said, well, a long time ago, God appointed an angel to carry rocks and scatter them across the world. But he tripped and dumped them all in Israel. I think that's probably what happened if you go over there and look at it. But really, when Solomon writes this, he's likely referring to an ancient war practice. You can read about it uh, later in 2 Kings 3. If if the enemy was about to conquer you, if the enemy was about to take your land, the war practice was this. Then cover the land in stones to make it hard for him to work the land. Scatter the stones across the ground. Cover the ground in stones, and then they'll have to gather them up before they can use the land for anything. Then he said, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain. That is, there's a time for affirmation and there's a time for confrontation. Then he says, watch this next one. A time to search and a time to give up. I live out that scripture every day of my life. 
I'm always searching for my phone or my wallet or my glasses. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's really bad. Even in Boston this week, I, I had people, John can bear witness, he, 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 he helped me. Preacher, get your phone. You're leaving your phone. Hey, your, your glasses are on the table. Oh, you might need this. The const- they were doing for me what Lisa does for me every day. But here's what you need to know. I'm just living out the Scriptures. There's a time to, there's a time, it's right there in the Scripture. There's a time to search. So that's just what I, that's the way I live. I'm searching every day. And a time, he says, to give up. And sometimes I have to do that. And then, he says, verse 6, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. Here's the biblical authority for garage sales. If you needed to know if it's okay to have a garage sale, it's right there in Scripture. There's a time to get rid of it. We've, you know, I didn't say this in the, in the first service. I probably shouldn't say this with Lisa here. But I, I fear she's going to take this verse and write it on a 3 by 5 card and put it in my t-shirt drawer. There are a number of t-shirts she's been wanting me to throw away. And been after me for a long time. But again, I'm living out the scripture. It says there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. Verse 7, there's a time to tear and a time to mend. This is beautiful. Time to tear and a time to mend. That probably is referring to the Jewish practice of tearing your clothes in a time of grief. Joseph's father got the news that his son, that he thought his son was dead. He ripped his garment in grief. It was a sign of deep grief when you just take your garment and you rip it. There's a time to tear when you're overcome with grief. And then he says, there's also a time to get out the needle and the thread and begin to mend that which was torn. Begin to mend from your grief. Then he says in verse 7, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. We often get those times confused, don't we? We often get in trouble because we get those confused. Somebody said, I've never felt sorry for the things I did not say. That's a good word. And then he, he ends this way. He said, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The author seems to be moving now to more of a, from a personal experience to a national experience because the nation of Israel has always had her enemies. It's always had times of peace, but also many times of war. And Solomon says that's the way life is. But we have to ask ourselves a question as we work our way through this poem. We have to ask ourselves the question, what's the purpose of this poetic list? And I think the purpose is this. Solomon wants us all to stop and to think about our lives. He wants us to understand the times and the seasons that we're living in. That there is a, a then, the time we're living in right now. But the, I'm sorry, there's a now, but there's also a then. There's a now, I'm living through this right now, but there's a then, because life is times and seasons. It will, will not always be this way. What I'm going through is not what I will always go through, whether good or bad. He wants us to stop and think about our lives, and then he wants us to ask ourselves a question. And he gives us the question in verse 9. Look what he says in verse 9. What does the worker gain from all of his toil? 
Think about this. We all go through times of birth and life and love and work and then death. We all do. It's a common experience for every one of us. We all go through those times of birth and life and love and work and then death. There are seasons in life that we all experience. But did you notice in this list that these seasons seem to almost cancel out one another? It's very important that you understand this. Every birth ends in a death. Everything you plant eventually is pulled up. The things you build are eventually torn down. Things you celebrate often lead to a funeral. Peace gives way to war. Solomon is looking at how life kind of has these polar opposites. And we go through these seasons in life and one simply cancels out the other. And Solomon says in verse 9, so what's the gain? Look at it again, verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? If we go through all of these times and all of these seasons, what's the gain? And that is a very good question. He's simply asking, when it's all said and done, what's the point of all that I've said and all that I've done? And then thankfully he provides the answer for us in verses 10 through 14. There's two things I want to give you today by way of applying this text to your life and mine. Solomon answers the question that he asks in verse 9. He answers the question in verses 10 through 14. And there's two points. Here's the first one. Points of application. Number one is this. Our lives are connected to eternity. You see, we're different from the rest of creation. Solomon says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Here's the way he describes it. I've seen, verse 10, I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, now notice this phrase. He has made, he has made everything beautiful in its time. It may not look beautiful right now. It may not seem beautiful right now. It may not feel beautiful right now. You may be going through a time or season that is very difficult, but God is sovereignly working all things for our good, according to the book of Romans. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And then he says, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. That's interesting. He set eternity in our hearts. We're different from the rest of creation. That's why nobody, not even Solomon, could find satisfaction and meaning in his life without God. Eternity here is in contrast, that one word is in contrast to the 29 times he uses the word time in verses 1 through 8. He said eternity in our hearts. We know that life under the sun is not all that there is. There's a desire in our hearts for something beyond this life. There's a desire in our lives for something more than this world has to offer. And the point is this. Watch this. This is so good. Solomon says he's put eternity in your heart. You're connected to eternity. And here's what that means. Your life is not meaningless if you're connected to God. Life isn't meaningless or monotonous when you realize that God has made you a part of His eternal plan. Can I say that again? Solomon says, listen, here's what I've learned. Life is not meaningless. It's not monotonous if you realize God's made you part of His eternal plan. You see, your story is not the story. The story is the one that God's writing. 
And Solomon says, God's put eternity in your heart. He wants you to be part of his story. He wants you to be part of what he's doing. So he's given you a little taste of this desire for something more than what this world has to offer. He's given you a desire for that which is eternal. He has given you, that's why people keep trying to find satisfaction. They keep trying to find happiness in this world under the sun and they'll never find it. Because God's put eternity in your heart that can only be satisfied when you know the eternal God. That brings me to the second point. And the second point is this. We can trust the timeless God with the times of our lives. I'll say that again. We can trust a timeless God with the times of our lives. Look what he says in verse 11. Second part of the verse. He has also said eternity in the hearts of men. And watch this. Yet... Parentheses, even though they have eternity in their heart, even though they have this desire for that which is eternal, the, the desire for God, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Part of living wisely is learning to accept that we have, all, we have a very limited access to the big picture of what God is doing. The problem is not that God has refused to share the big picture with us. The problem is that we're not built to understand the big picture. That's what he means when he says in the second half of verse 11. Yet they cannot fathom. It doesn't say they will not. It says they cannot. They cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. They they, they cannot fathom what God is doing in these times and seasons because they're only focused on the now. And they can't fathom what God is up to. The problem is not that God's not willing to show you. The problem is that you're not able to understand it. And I want to tell you why you're not able to understand it. Listen carefully. Here's why. We live in the boundaries of time. And God does not. We live within these boundaries of time. And all we can understand are are what happens in the boundaries of time. And God lives in eternity. We're temporary, and God's eternal. And so Solomon says, we don't have the capacity to even understand what God's up to, at least not fully. Uh, Maybe this will help you. Those of you who are parents, if you have little kids or teenagers, or you've had little kids or teenagers, could I ask you a question? Have your kids ever gotten angry at you or frustrated with you because of the way you were parenting them? Come on, was it anybody beyond me? You try to tell them what they can eat or what they can't eat or should eat or shouldn't eat or you tell them what they could wear or can't wear. You tell them where they can go or they can't go and they don't understand why you're being so restrictive. They just think you're unreasonable. And they get frustrated and they get angry because how dare you? They, they, you know what the problem is? They're thinking of the now. You're thinking of, of the then. You're, they're thinking of my desires right now. But watch this. You have a perspective they do not have. You see things they cannot see. You know things they cannot know. And here's the reason. Because they've never been a parent. Because they've never been a parent, they're not going to be able to comprehend 
all that you're talking about because they've never been a parent. They're not going to be able to comprehend why you're saying no. They don't understand that you see more than they see and that you know more than, than they know. And God, your heavenly Father, who is eternal, sees more than you see and He knows more than you know and you'll never fully be able to grasp it all because you've never been God. You and I are temporary at best. And we cannot fathom what the eternal God has done from beginning to end. So, let me bring you to a conclusion. The point of Ecclesiastes is not that life has good times and bad times and you need to roll with the punches. That's not the point of Ecclesiastes. The point of Ecclesiastes is this. Life has good times and bad times and you're not in control, but God is. Life has good times and bad times that we can't control. But we live in a world that God controls. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. We'll close with this. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is the gift of God. If you, if you kind of learn to accept life for what it is, that'll be a gift from God. And then he says... Watch this, verse 14 is so good. I know that everything that God does, you might want to underline God does, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. Everything that God does will endure forever. Listen, everything that I do is going to be temporary. Everything God does is eternal. Nothing that I do is going to last. Everything that God does lasts for eternity. That's why David prayed this prayer in Psalm 31. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God and my times are in your hands. You see, let me make this last statement. Listen carefully. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. Knowing that God is outside of time, and that He sees it all and knows it all stops me from having to be in control of it all. Right? If I can come to the realization that God is outside of time and everything that He does is eternal. He sees what I cannot see. He knows what I do not know. And if he sees it all and he knows it all, that stops me from having to be in control of everything that happens to me. Because I'm not living life under the sun. I'm living life under heaven. I want you to bow your heads with me. I don't know if you have yet trusted Christ as your Savior, but whether you have or not, I need you to understand all of us, we need to understand, every head bowed, every eye closed, God has indeed put something in our hearts that is a taste or a longing for eternity and will never quench that thirst with the things of this world. There will always be a longing within you for something more than you can experience until you know God personally. So I'm just asking you today, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior and find that ultimate satisfaction in this life? 
the ultimate satisfaction in this life is to find a relationship with God who is eternal. That which is, He's placed eternity in your heart because it's simply a craving for Him. Stop drinking from the mud holes of this world and start drinking the living water that God provides. I pray that today, if you don't know Christ as Savior, that you will trust Him today. And I pray that if you are a Christian, but right now you're in a time or a season that is difficult, would you make this your prayer? God, more than I need answers, I need you. More than I need answers, I need you. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. Thank you that in the times and the seasons of our lives, you're in charge of it all. May we live our lives committed to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.